Good morning again. Well, this morning we conclude Paul's letter to Philemon. Unless you've been thinking over the last few weeks, what does a first century letter about a slave, a runaway slave, and his master have to do with us? I hope that this morning in the text we have, we see clearly that the gospel that was believed in by Philemon and Onesimus and Paul is not only the same gospel we believe in today, but it is the gospel that we continually are transformed by. It's not just a gospel for the unbeliever. It is good news for us believers, too. And when we believe the gospel of Jesus' kingdom, it transforms every part of our lives. It transforms our relationships. It transforms our behaviors. And I hope that's what we see clearly in this text this morning. Paul begins with that idea of the gospel transforming relationships as we see in verse 17. He says to Philemon, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. In some ways, this is the very heart of the letter that Paul is writing. It is his request put most simply. See, Paul is first putting a relationship here between him and Philemon, that they are partners. And, And from everything we see in this letter and from Paul's background of being in Philemon's town in Colossae, we we get very clearly the idea that they are, in fact, partners, and that Philemon would consider Paul a partner. And so by building that connection, he says, if you consider me a partner, do me this favor. And the favor is this. Because you consider me a partner, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Receive him as a brother, as we see in verse 16, but also receive him as your partner, your partner in the gospel of Jesus' kingdom. Now, I don't really know, but I would assume that Philemon and also Onesimus probably weren't too thrilled about being partners with each other. Philemon probably didn't like that now his relationship, where he was a master giving commands to his slave, had been transformed so that now they were partners. It was reordered so that instead of being in different partnerships, he was now a partner with his slave. I can imagine Onesimus didn't like it so much either. He had run away from this master. We don't have anything to think that Philemon was a harsh master or a bad one, but he had run away nonetheless. So you can imagine he didn't like the idea of being a partner with him and coming back and having to reconcile that much either. And the truth is that probably many of us can think of people who are believers in Christ with us, our fellow brothers and sisters, that if we had our choice, we wouldn't choose to be partners with them. The reality is there there may even be people in the pews behind you or in front of you or across the aisle from you that you're not super eager to be partners with them. Maybe it's a difference of personalities. They like golf, you like football. They like music and the arts, you like CrossFit and going to the gym. They like cars, and you like riding a bicycle. You like to go into the woods and look at all the beautiful creatures that God has made, and they like to go sit there and wait for one to come along they can shoot. You just have different personalities across the spectrum. You also have people who, who may be harsh or a little bit more direct and blunt than you would like. 
Or maybe you are the harsh and direct one, and you don't like how they don't ever want to really settle down on anything or say anything clearly. Maybe it is that they will never stop saying yes to things, and that drives you crazy. Or maybe it bothers you that they just seem to really like saying no. We all have different personalities that affect whether we want to be partners together. And maybe it's not just our personalities. Maybe it's also our opinions, whether it be politics, whether it be philosophy of ministry. We're partners in the gospel. Why won't they do it the way I think it ought to be done? Or maybe it's even different theological opinions, some tertiary issues that we disagree on, but we feel very strongly about our side of it. There may be people within our own church. There may be people when you leave this church and you serve at your job and you, you serve them over the counter or wherever it may be, that they're believers. As far as you can tell, they're genuine believers. People who have faith in Jesus, his death, his resurrection. They love God as far as you can tell with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. Not perfectly, but as best as they can do. And they seem to want to love their neighbors themselves, but you're not super eager on being partners with them. I can imagine it was the same for Philemon and Onesimus. But see, the gospel reorders our partnerships. It remakes who we are partners with. So that it, it's not based on who's the boss and who's the employee, who's the slave, who's the master. It's simply based on the fact that we are all sinners, humbled by our sin, but saved by grace, being exalted by the Lord in his death and resurrection. It makes me think of uh, the pastor Timothy Keller. He was a church planter and pastor in New York City. He's gone on, he's retired now, but his churches have gone on to multiply across the globe planting more churches in different cities and all over the place. But before he was a church planner and, and sold some books and became a megachurch pastor, he was a pastor in a small rural church. And he talked about how one day him and his wife both had a random day in the week off. They, neither of them were working. And so they were trying to figure out what they ought to do. And a lot of their relationships were in the church. And he just suggested, well, how about we go hang out with this couple? And his wife responded, why on earth would we do that? Because, yeah, that, that couple was, were church members, and, and yes, they needed to minister to them. They needed to serve them. Yeah, sure. But it was their off day. Why would we spend our off day with them? He said of that couple that they, were, they had very few friends. They weren't uh, very engaged in the church. They had some marital issues that kind of caused people to not really come too close to them. But he said, as their pastor, I was praying for them. As their pastor, I was thinking about them a lot, actually, and my emotions were being pulled to them. In fact, I was sitting and counseling them regularly. And so through the practices of pastoring and loving them, he said, I came to take a couple that I wouldn't have chosen to spend time with if I were paid to, to a place where on my off day, I said, well, how about we go spend time with them? He realized that his heart was being transformed to love this couple because of the gospel. But his wife's hadn't yet because she hadn't had those same experiences. Unless you think that is the call of only pastors, it's the call of all of, it, all of us. Maybe it's the pastor's affections and the pastor's heart to go and sit with people who are struggling, people who look differently than them, people who have different personalities, people who have different struggles and sins. But that's the call of all of us. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, 
but we are also partners in the gospel of Jesus' kingdom. And as gospel partners, we have to go to people and to places we may not want to go. But the gospel transforms more than that with our relationships. It also reorders the positions we find ourselves. We see this in verses 18 through 20. Paul, Paul uses these verses to subvert the relationship that Philemon and Onesimus have. Philemon is over Onesimus as his master, ordering him around. And, and I'll pause here to say, I'm not going to go into a long explanation of Roman slavery, but if you want that long explanation, you should go to the Sunday seminar next week. They're covering apologetics, and I hear they're doing slavery next week, talking about the Bible's relationship to slavery. So you might want to consider going to that class next week if you're interested in that. But it is to say that the gospel is reordering the positions that Philemon and Onesimus find themselves in. We see in verse 18, Paul writes, If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So we get an indication here that perhaps Onesimus, before he ran away, stole something from Philemon. Perhaps he broke something or did something wrong that led him to run away. We don't know. It doesn't say. It could be that the wrong he has done and the debt he owes is simply that he did run away. That he has to go, uh, that, that, that Philemon has missed out on the labor that he was supposed to be providing in that time. Or simply put, he could have been a slavery because he was in debt to Philemon. And so the debt that Paul's referring to, maybe it's just the debt that got him into slavery in the first place. We don't know. But what we know, whatever it is, and however large of a sum it is, or however difficult these wrongs were, Paul says, charge them to my account. Now, Paul never mentions the death and resurrection of Jesus in this letter. It's the only letter of Paul's we have where he never mentions the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the death of Jesus is so explicit in what Paul does. Paul doesn't talk about the gospel. He lives the gospel. He doesn't talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. He lives Jesus' death for Onesimus. On Onesimus already had freedom from slavery to sin in Christ, but now he had a situation with Philemon that needed to be dealt with. So Paul steps in, and he says, I'm going to stand in his place. Just as Jesus substituted himself on the cross for us, Paul steps in and says, every wrong he has done, charge it to me. Every debt he owes, every little bit, charge it to my account. This is a pretty radical call for us. Because I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and he has multiple stories that I remember he just shared with me, and he didn't give details because he wanted to maintain privacy and all that. But in the past, he had shared stories where he said, I'm just struggling because they think I'm a bad guy, and I've done so much for them they cannot know about. They just can't know about it because of confidentiality. They can't know it because of the circumstances. I want them to have a good relationship with their spouse. I don't want them to know what their spouse told me that I helped them through. And when we were talking through it, he said, really at the end of the, the, the day, if you put yourself in the place of Jesus for others, if you are a substitute for them, you have to look like the bad guy. You have to look like the bad guy. Didn't Jesus, who had no sin and was not a criminal, look like a sinner and a criminal on the cross? Everybody thought so. But he did that. 
because he took our sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our punishment in our place. He suffered for us. And now Paul doesn't just talk about it and give it lip service. He does it himself. He stands in his place. And that is insane. I don't know about you, but I've heard for a long time, Jesus' death is an example we follow. We, we willingly give our lives for others. But no one said anything about looking bad in this life. No one ever said following Jesus' death mean, may mean you don't physically die. It may just mean that you're the bad guy to a whole host of people because you stood in someone else's place because you are willing to be their substitute. But it doesn't stop there. Paul continues to live the death of Jesus as we see in verse 19. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me your own, even your own self. First off, we don't we don't know exactly whether this one verse was written by Paul or if the whole letter was. He was in a damp, dark cell, probably malnourished and suffering in his own filth and the filth of others, I'm sure. It's not the picture of a man with the quill writing it at a desk, all quaint, praying to God with the candles lit. No, it's someone in a jail cell. And we don't know if he was dictating this letter and said, hey, wait, I need to write this one part myself. Let me write this IOU with my own hand. But whatever it was, he either writes this line or this shorter letter and makes it clear this, I will repay it. Isn't that exactly what our Lord says for us? Whatever wrong they have done against God that makes them condemned, whatever debt they owe that they cannot repay, I will repay it. And it's not just that, though. Paul turns things around real quick. He says, to, not, to, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. See, this is where we get the idea that Paul, uh, or Philemon, was probably converted and became a Christian and a believer under the preaching of Paul. So Paul is saying, you owe me more than you're ever going to be able to repay me, Philemon. Because of my preaching, you have heard the good news of Jesus. You have heard that his kingdom has come. You have heard that his death and resurrection have been in your place. You've heard this. So because of my preaching, you now owe me nothing, to say nothing of how much you owe Jesus himself. And so he says, implicitly, that debt that I've taken on for Onesimus, that's, that's done. That is done. It is satisfied. See, Paul recognizes that on the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God the Father. And that now, in this life, he is, in taking on Onesimus' debt, supposed to satisfy every part of it. See, the reality about Jesus is that he was a human being. He was a full human being, capable of dying, capable of redeeming every part of humanity, soul and body, in his death and resurrection. But... He was also fully God so that he could do what we could not, which is actually repay an infinite debt against an infinite and holy God. See, if we had only sinned once, one little thing, one little white lie, that sin would be against a holy and infinite God. We could never repay. It would be incalculable what we would have to do or pay back in order 
to see ourselves forgiven for that. But Jesus, being fully God, is infinite in his person. In his very nature, he is infinite. And so on the cross, although he could die as a human, he could pay an infinite price that we as a human could never pay to a holy and infinite God. Adrian Rogers, the famous, very famous, too famous, Southern Baptist pastor once said that Jesus was so fully man, it was, this, it was as if he were not God at all. And he was so fully God, it was as if he weren't man at all, yet he was both. In Jesus' humanity, he died, and in his divinity, he paid the infinite price we owe God for each and every one of our sins. Jesus fully satisfied the wrongdoing and the debt that we owed to God. Can you imagine what that would look like for us? To put ourselves in a situation where we stepped in to pay someone else's debt. But it wasn't just that, like on a, on a GoFundMe online or in an offering at a spaghetti dinner, it wasn't just that we put five or ten bucks in. It was that we said, no, we're, we'll take care of the whole thing. Every medical bill, send it to us. We're just going to pay it. Every little bit of money you need, it's ours. Don't worry about it. We're covering the whole thing. I know not everyone's in that position financially, but even outside of finances, in other issues where, where we are stepping in for people, how, willing, how, how far are we willing to go? Jesus didn't tell us, finish the mile and go home. He said, go the second one. And implied in that was, and the one after that, and the one after that, as far as you needed. See, the gospel transforms our relationships so that people we don't want to be our partners have become our partners. And people we do want to become our partners have become our partners. But it also reorders our positions so that these dynamics that exist in the kingdom of this world, employer-employee, teacher and student, parent and child, cease to be fundamental to who we are. What is fundamental is that we are all sinners. And what is fundamental for those in Christ is that we have been saved by his grace and his gracious death and resurrection. That his kingdom has come and we have entered in. But the gospel doesn't stop there. Look in verse 20. Paul says, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. Remember that debt that Philemon owed Paul? Well, it's even bigger than he let on in the verse before. It's actually such a great debt that not only could he never repay it, Paul gets to take on other people's debts and say, now they're canceled. It's such a great debt that Paul says, do me this one more. Do me this favor. Give me some benefits. It'll, it'll benefit me, this favor, but also benefit the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Should make us think of verse 7 where he calls Philemon a brother and says that he is known for uh, loving the saints and refreshing their hearts. We see that Philemon has a reputation for loving and, and hospitality. He has a reputation for caring for others and quote-unquote refreshing their hearts. And so we see that Paul calls for him to do the same thing. Show me hospitality in how you treat Onesimus. And, and not only that, but as you receive him, receive him as you would me, as someone who is being hospitable. 
In all of this, I, I think of Jesus' parable from Matthew 18 of the unforgiving debtor. If you, if you don't know the parable, it, I'm just going to sketch it out in broad strokes. But it talks about a king who was trying to get his debts repaid, and a man came to, who, to him who owed a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, one talent was worth 20 years' wages. So this man owed him 200,000 lifetimes of money. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not finding that anytime soon. And so he begs and pleads with this king to forgive him, and the, the king shows mercy on him and forgives him the debt, cancels it completely. But that debtor then goes on, and he finds a guy who owes him 100 denarii. Now, a denarii is quite different than a talent. It's not worth 20 years' wages. It's worth one day's wages. So he goes to a man, after having been forgiven 200,000 years of work, he goes to a man who owes him 100 days' wages. And he beats him and puts him in prison until he can repay it. The king was not super happy when he found out about this. He called in that man and said, How could you, how could you, who have been forgiven so much, be so stingy and for unforgiving to this other man? And of course, he put him in prison until he could repay it, which he could not do. And it doesn't matter how many days he stays in that prison, he's not going to be able to repay it. I would hate, and I know I need forgiveness for this, even so, because I know I haven't been perfect, but I would hate to have the king of this world step into my life and say, how could you be so unforgiving and so stingy that you have been forgiven every wrong you have ever done. Everything you have ever done against me or anyone else has been forgiven by Jesus on the cross, but you wouldn't forgive them for that? You wouldn't, you wouldn't let go of the anger in your heart, the bitterness in your heart, the resentment, the feeling of injustice and unfairness? You wouldn't let that go? Do you not know what you were given? Do you not know what you have been forgiven? I think we're called on, like Philemon, to stop being so stingy and unforgiving. Philemon has earned everything he needed. He has been given everything he needs. Paul's saying, don't go on being stingy and unforgiving. Whatever debt Onesimus owes you was nothing in comparison to what you've been given. Just let it go. But the gospel doesn't just transform our relationships, although it very much does. It also transforms our behaviors. We see in verse 21 that it renews our responses. Listen to these words of Paul. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Again, it doesn't seem like Paul ever says anything bad about Philemon in this letter. And, and he was a slave owner, which Paul actually wasn't a huge fan of based on other things he said. But he doesn't say anything bad about him. Now, it could be all rhetoric. Trying to flatter Philemon, trying to convince him, hey, you're a good guy, aren't you? Do the good thing. But it really genuinely, based on some of the stuff he says, seems like he actually thinks Philemon is pretty worthwhile. He's got a house church that seems to be going well. He's taking care of the, the believers, the saints in his church and in his community. To the point that Paul says, 
that he's confident of his obedience. The irony being that Paul earlier in the letter said that he wasn't going to command him anything, but was going to let him freely in love do what he thought was right. Ironically, Paul, at this point, has kind of given that up and said, you know, I'm just confident that you're going to listen to me. And he says, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul's main objective, it seems, in this letter was to bring about the reconciliation of Philemon and Onesimus, to bring them together and, and to remind them that in Christ they are partners. So whatever their earthly social dynamics are, whatever the kingdom of this world, whatever Caesar says they are, doesn't really matter so much. What's fundamental is this new partnership they have. But, we can imagine, in a similar circumstance, that, that a master receiving a runaway slave would not be super kind about it. Legally, he had every right to do whatever he needed to do, to call in the civil authorities, to get some justice going. He could have just beaten him or treated him poorly. But Paul wants him to renew his response, his reaction, not to work out of that angry heart or that broken heart, or that bitter heart, but to work out of a heart transformed by the love of God. A heart transformed by the love of God. See, our responses and our reactions to situations are renewed. If we believe the gospel and we begin to live the gospel, then how we react to the things ought to change. It doesn't mean we do it perfectly. In fact, Paul here is making very explicit that, hey, you need to do it well. Maybe the implication was, I know you're a good guy, but I don't know how you're going to handle this. But you need to do it in this way. We're all open to being corrected in that. But Paul's main objective was the reconciliation. It seems that he would have also liked Philemon to send Onesimus back to work with him longer. We see that in verses 13 and 14. And it may be implicit in that, that he wants Philemon to free Onesimus from slavery which was a little bit more common in this society. Either way, he's confident that he will do even more than he says. And we ought to recognize that our responses to situations, our responses are shaped by the gospel. A runaway slave returning to his master isn't so far off of a runaway child re returning to his father See, our God is called both Father and Lord or Master. Think of the, the returning son who comes back after spitting in his father's face and taking all his money, going and wasting it, and comes back. And that father, representing God, runs to him and embraces him. It's not too far off that Paul would say to Philemon, yes, you're his master, but in a way, if you're reflecting what it means to be a master like God is a master, you're also his father, and you ought to embrace him in the same way. See, even though Paul says he was confident, he gave some provisions in the letter to the Colossians. See, the letter to the Colossians and the letter to Philemon were sent together. And in Colossians, he makes clear some rules for slaves and masters. And it's it simply put like this, slaves, treat him as if he were your heavenly master, as if he is Jesus. Do your work as if it were to Christ. But he also says, Masters, remember that you have a heavenly master who will judge you 
So treat your slaves justly and fairly. Just in case this reconciliation doesn't lead to complete freedom, there are some provisions Paul makes. So we realize that the gospel renews how we respond to the situations we find ourselves in. We realize that even if it's a runaway slave returning to a master, we can run and embrace them too. The gospel also rearranges our plans. If you look at verse 22, he says, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Now, this may seem like a simple instruction, but I wouldn't be a good preacher if I said this is a simple instruction and moved on. I've got to spend some time talking about this. That's a joke, but I am going to talk about it a little bit more because it is a simple instruction, but it's much more. It's also a warning and a hint. The warning is this. Philemon, I'm going to be coming back around. So whatever you do, it's not going to escape me. I am going to know. There's a little bit of a warning there. And that, that, that accountability is natural in a partnership in the gospel. We sh- ought to expect that there is accountability between brothers and sisters in Christ. That when we are partners in the gospel, that we open the door to accountability, to checking in, to saying, Brother, I hope you didn't mean to say that, because I just don't think Jesus would want you to have said that. Or sister, sister, I, I just don't think that reflected Jesus very well. But it's not only that, it's being open to accountability. Not just having the ability to go and hold people accountable, and if you overdo that, you might be a certain kind of personality. But it's also being open and making yourself open to being accountable. It's presenting yourself as someone who is open to correction, is open to being shaped and transformed more and more by the gospel. Recognizing that the gospel is not just how we enter the kingdom, but it's how we stay in the kingdom It is the news of the kingdom. So the gospel sometimes rearranges our plans. And if you're any older than I am, you know even better than I do that you make plans and you never know how it's going to go. And the scripture teaches that as well. I used to have one preacher I knew who would say, me and my wife say, we make plans and God laughs. There's a little bit of truth to that. But there is this reality that whatever our plans might be, we may have to arrange them for the sake of the gospel. It may be that you want to live close to home, but God is calling you to be a missionary or to be a pastor or to be just a teacher in a different place. It may be that you want to live far away from home, but God is calling you to go and be a witness to your family. It may be that you you want to pursue a career in one thing or another, but you realize that God wants something different. It may be whatever it may be, but the reality is sometimes God reshapes our plans and rearranges them. So Paul says, prepare a guest room for me as a warning, but also as a hint. As a hint, he is cluing Philemon into this. I said, receive him as you would receive me. Now, if you were to receive me, wouldn't you prepare a nice guest room for me and serve a nice meal and give me plenty of water to drink and maybe wash my feet? Okay, now when Onesimus arrives and he's handing you this letter, what are you supposed to do? You better go up there and prepare a guest room for him. Refresh his heart. Be hospitable to him as you would any other brother and sister in Christ, as you would any other partner in Christ. Show that to Onesimus. Now as we think about how the gospel transforms our lives, I want us to look at verses 23 and 24 
And we see a host of witnesses Paul calls on to attest to Onesimus. Epaphras, who was actually from Colossae, he says, My fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So Paul is doing a general greeting. All of these men are mentioned in the letter to Col uh, the Colossians as well. But I want to focus on two of them, Mark and Demas. Now, if you don't remember, Mark and Paul have a checkered past. See, Paul went on his first missionary journey with his partner, Barnabas. And they seemed to be a pretty good pair. And with Barnabas came along, Barnabas's cousin, I just like to think he's his little cousin, but I don't actually know if it says that, his little cousin, Mark. And they go on their missionary journey. But it's not too long before Mark decides to leave them, and we don't know why he left them, but he does. And then they finish their journey and come back, and they settle some things, and then they're going to go on their second journey, and Barnabas seems to stop Paul and say, you know, Paul, I, I think we should have Mark go with us. You know, my cousin, you know, I, I want him to come with us. And Paul says, yeah, I don't know about that. You know, I didn't really appreciate when he ran off last time. Yeah, I get that, but I think he would be really useful to us. He'd be really helpful. You know, he's, he's learned so much in the last few years, and he had a good reason for leaving. And Paul says, I know it's a family thing for you, Barnabas. I just don't think we need to bring people based on their potential. Everybody has potential. We need to, we need to bring someone based on their proven experience, and Mark doesn't have a good proven experience. I get it. Yeah, my mom might be mad. His mom might be mad. But that's not really why I want him to go. I think he would be really useful. I don't think he should come. Well, if he's not coming, then I'm not coming. And possibly the greatest gospel partnership that ever existed split. Two good men, Paul and Barnabas, divided over this little guy, Mark. And if that were all the story, you'd be rather sad. But here's what is so amazing. In the letter to Colossians and the letter to Philemon, Mark is mentioned as a fellow worker, not just with Barnabas, but with Paul. We don't know who initiated it. We don't know how it went or what was said. But somewhere along the way, Mark, who had divided Paul and Barnabas, was now a fellow worker with Paul. They had reconciled through the gospel. But there's another story See, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul does say about Mark, get him, he's very useful to me. Uh, Paul's last words that we have written down are 2 Timothy 4, and in it he says, get Mark to come here. He has been very useful to me in ministry, but he also says about Demas something else. Now, Demon, Demas was mentioned in the letter to the Colossians and the letter to Philemon as a fellow worker and was spoken of positively. But when Paul went to write what we have as his last words written down, he said this, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. On his deathbed or near his deathbed, Paul wrote of Mark, Get him, bring him to me. He's, very, he's been very useful to me in ministry. But of Demas, he wrote, he was too much in love with this present world. He deserted me. We see in that a life transformed by the gospel, but also a life formed by the world. 
We don't know whether Demas just liked his life and didn't want to be executed in Rome. We don't know if he just had family he wanted to go back to in Thessalonica. We don't know if he just wanted to go and get away from all this religious stuff. We don't know what was going on. But we know in one story we see Mark and Paul reconciled, and in another we see the opposite. As far as we know, Demas and Paul never got back together. You know, there's not a First Baptist Church in this country that I know of where you can't, as a new pastor, be driven around town and have someone point out almost every other house. Well, they went here back, you know, 20 years ago. They were members. But now they go to this church, or they don't go to church at all, or they're retired and their kids moved away, so they just kind of go out and do whatever on the weekend. I was talking to one pastor in particular. He, say, he said, I came and had a, the deacon drive me around town, and that was the story about every other house in that town. Wouldn't it be amazing if we prayed and saw people who have been estranged and alienated, who have deserted our church, and we prayed and saw them not end up like Demas, who we never really heard from again, but we saw them like Mark. Whether by our initiative or theirs, reconciliation happened. Wouldn't it be a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ that not only reconciles us with God, but also reconciles us with each other if we actually saw people return and say, we're sorry, or return and say, we don't know what we were thinking, or return and say, you know what, I may have been in the right, I may have been in the wrong, but the reality is this, I have been so starving for the word of God in my life. It started with, the, with not going to Sunday school or the church service, Eventually, I wasn't reading the Bible. Eventually, I wasn't praying. Eventually, I didn't even pray before my meal with my grandkids. Time and time went on, and I just don't even think about it a whole lot. But I realized that I was in the wrong and returned. We have two examples here for us and for others. A life transformed by the gospel in which we're going to reach out to people who look different than us, act different than us, maybe who are in this church already that we have not had a relationship. Someone older than us, someone younger than us. Someone in whatever of life circumstances, married or single, kids or no kids, whatever it is, and we reach across the aisle and join hand in hand and extend that right hand of fellowship and partnership to them. See, the reality is the gospel is not something that we believe and move on from. It is what changes us day after day after day. And that's why if you come to First Baptist Alcoa, I hope that you see that we are preaching and singing and praying the gospel every week, not because we think there's going to be a big crowd of unbelievers that need to be converted, but because we are in here and we are sinners who need more and more of God's grace so that we don't just live lives where we've checked a box down the road with a prayer or a baptism, but where we live lives constantly and consistently transformed by the gospel of Jesus' kingdom. Where we don't say that the gospel is, my kingdom come, my will be done, in heaven as it is on earth, but instead we say it is your kingdom that comes, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just a get-out-of-hell card. It is so much more than that. It is bringing God's kingdom now, eternity now, Jesus now. We see in verse 25, Paul concludes with these words, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And that's just not a salutation. That is him praying that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ 
that loved you so much that he came and died for you by being your substitute, by being your satisfaction. May that grace be with you, Philemon, so that when Onesimus shows up on your doorstep with this letter, you may be like Jesus to him. You may live the gospel. That the death and resurrection isn't just something that brought you together, it's something that keeps you together. That is his prayer, and may that be so with us. Let's pray.